Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons on the book of Revelation. And to that end, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Let us hear the word of God. John writes that I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angels stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. This ends the reading of the Holy Word of God. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his Holy Word to our hearts. Dear friends, prior to his ascension into heaven, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ commanded his disciples, and by extension all believers, to go out and preach the gospel to all nations. And we call this the Great Commission, and it's recorded in Matthew chapter 28, the verses 18 through 20. Now this task that the Lord has given to his church would not be easy. There would be many obstacles, many difficulties to overcome, and there would be much opposition. But in the end, the gospel will triumph. And this is precisely what our Lord is teaching us in the passage that we just read together, Revelation chapter 11. Now, as we observed last week, these verses form part of an extended interlude before the sounding of the seventh trumpet. This interlude consists of two parts. The first part consists of chapter 10, which we reflected on last week. And there we read how John received a little book and was commissioned to proclaim its contents. And we learned that this little book contained the additional judgments that God was about to unleash on the earth. But before John could proclaim its contents, he had to eat it, meaning he had to reflect on it and fully digest it. And this is exactly what he did. And he tells us that it was as sweet as honey in his mouth. But then, after he swallowed it, it became bitter, meaning it contained both things that are, unple- that are pleasant and comforting, but also things that are unpleasant and unsettling. Well, following this, the mighty angel said to him, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Well, now we come to the second part of this interlude the vision of the two witnesses. These are very difficult verses to understand and interpret. 
But the main message is that the task of the church between the first and second comings of Christ is and always must remain not social activism, not works of charity, not the inculcation of morality in society, but rather the preaching of the word of God. Now, we don't have time today to look at all 14 verses of this vision, so we'll only look at the first part, verses 1 to 6, dealing with the witness of the church. And next week, God willing, we hope to look at the second part, verses 7 to 14. So our theme today is the witness of the church during the last days. And we'll consider, first of all, the protection she is given, and secondly, the power she possesses. Our text chapter opens with a strange scene. John is back in heaven. And while he was there, he was shown a vision of the temple, the altar, and worshipers. Now the reference here is not to the actual temple in Jerusalem, because that temple had been destroyed by the Romans some 20 years before John is writing this book. Rather, it refers to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the church in heaven, not the church triumphant, but rather the church on earth, the church militant. And we know that because several times in the New Testament, believers are called the temple of God. For example, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Paul writes that the Corinthians were the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwelt in them. Similarly, in 1 Peter 2, verse 5, Peter writes, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, we have the same idea here. The temple is a symbol of believers who comprise the church militant. Well, upon showing him the temple, the angel gave John a reed like a measuring rod. And he then commanded him to go and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Now we have something very similar in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 40 and 41. There too, Ezekiel saw a man whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze, who did exactly the same thing. He too measured the temple. But before measuring the temple, John was explicitly commanded not to measure the court outside the temple. You may remember in Old Testament times, the outer court was the court of the Gentiles. It was from there that the Gentiles could gather and worship God. Now, several commentators suggest that this court represents nominal Christians, Christians who are Christians in name only. They're members of the church. They may even be leaders in the church, but they're not living members. They are unfruitful branches in the vine of Christ. They're in the church, but they're not savingly united to Jesus Christ. And as such, they, along with the world, are doomed to destruction. And the angel says as much. After commanding John not to measure the outer court, the angel told him why. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, the holy city represents the church. The Gentiles, or the nations, represents the unbelieving world, as well as unbelieving members of the visible church of Christ. When the angel says that the outer court has been given to the Gentiles, 
He means that the nominal members of the visible church of Christ, including false Christians and false teachers and leaders in the church, will be given over to the world. And together the world and these nominal Christians will join forces in treading underfoot and persecuting true believers. Now this is exactly what has happened throughout the ages. During the Middle Ages, corrupt members and leaders of the church, popes, bishops, and even priests, conspired together to attack and destroy the true members of the church. Think, for example, how the church dealt with the Waldensians, the followers of Peter Waldo, and the Lollards, the followers of John Wycliffe, and the Hussites, the followers of John Huss. They persecuted them even though they stood for the truth of the word of God. During the Reformation period, the same forces attacked the Protestants, especially in England and France and the Low Countries. And it's still happening today. Several months ago, I read of the Archbishop of York in England, who declared that it may be time to change the address of the Lord's Prayer because, as he said, it's too patriarchal and triggering to women who have suffered at the hands of abusive fathers and husbands. There's no question that many women have suffered at the hands of abusive fathers and husbands, but that is no ground for changing the Lord's prayer to eliminating the words our Father and changing that into something else. And there are other people in the church who are advocating that we address God using female pronouns for much the same reason and to placate the radical feminists within their midst. The point is the true church has and will come under attack. Thankfully, however, this attack will be of limited duration. John says it will last for only 42 months, or 1,260 days, or three and a half years, assuming each month is 30 days. Now, there's a lot of disagreement among Christians as to how to interpret this number. There are those who interpret it literally. But like the temple, it's best to interpret this symbolically. Because the book of Revelation is full of symbolic numbers, and this number is no different. Now, without going into too much detail, which can only make matters confusing, suffice it to say that the number 42 months, or 1260 days, or three and a half years, represents more or less the period of time between the first and second comings of Christ. Now, we know that because in the next chapter, in chapter 12, we read of a woman who represents the church who brings forth a male child who is to rule the nations, and that is, of course, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he will, in turn, ascend to his throne in heaven. And upon assuming his throne in heaven, we read that the woman will flee into the wilderness where she will be fed 1,260 days, or three and a half years. At the same time, Satan is cast out of heaven and persecutes the woman for the same amount of time. So clearly, the 1260 days and the three and a half years, or times, start at the same time, namely with Christ's enthronement in heaven. And they end with Christ's second coming, when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, as we read in chapter 11, verse 15. Now, the point that John is making is that during the period between Christ's first and second comings, the church will be under attack. 
But here's the thing. God will preserve and protect her. And we know that because in verse 1, John is commanded to measure the temple. Now, measuring in Scripture often signifies the care and protection that God affords to his children. The point here is, as one commentator says, whatever may be happening in the world, that however the church may be affected by it, there was no question as to God's care for his own. He superintends and governs his flock. His control is irresistible. His love is unremitting. Now, is that not a great comfort? It was certainly a comfort for the original readers of this book, who, as we've observed several times, were facing persecution. But it's also a comfort for us today. The attacks against the church and the Christian faith are increasing today. In fact, Christians today are the most persecuted religious group in the world. According to a recent report by Open Door, an organization that tracks the persecution of Christians around the world, today more than 360 million Christians face severe persecution and discrimination for their faith. The number of Christians who have been killed for their faith has also risen by 80% in the last five years. And it will only get worse. In the midst of all of this, what a comfort it is to know that God has measured his temple. He knows every single living member of his church. And he has promised to sustain and preserve them until the day that the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. And knowing that, we can face the future with confidence and entrust ourselves to our faithful God and Father. But that's only true for true believers. Make no mistake. False or nominal believers, those who are in the outer court of the temple, they will have no such protection. For they've been given to the Gentiles. And together they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And in the end, they will perish. Now what a warning there is here to those who are believers in name only, who are merely going through the motions, but who do not love and serve God with all of their heart, their mind, their soul, and their strength. I wonder if that includes anyone listening to my voice today. And if it does, if you're just a nominal Christian, if you're just going through the motions, I urge you to repent, to confess your sin before the Lord and ask him to give you a new heart. For only then will you enter into everlasting life. And so the church will face great persecution. But in the midst of this persecution, she will have great spiritual power. And that brings us to our second point. After showing us the temple, the angel introduces another difficult metaphor, the two witnesses. We read of them in verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now who are these two witnesses? Well, commentators, again, will differ on this question. Some interpret these two witnesses literally to refer to two specific human beings, either two Christian prophets who were martyred shortly before the fall of Jerusalem, or some say two prophets who will appear shortly before the second coming. Now, some identify them as Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets. And they do that because of what we read in verse 6. There we read that these two witnesses had power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. 
which reminds us of the time of Elijah, because that's what Elijah did. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire, which reminds us of Moses. Now, based on this, these commentators argue that Moses and Elijah will make an actual appearance on the earth before the second coming of Jesus Christ. But like so many aspects of the book of Revelation, it is best to interpret these two witnesses not literally, but rather symbolically. And if that is so, then whom do these two witnesses represent? Well, the answer is they represent the church. Specifically, as one says, one commentator puts it, they represent the church militant bearing testimony through its ministers and missionaries throughout the present dispensation. So just as these two witnesses bear witness to the truth of God's word, so does the church. Now we learn from these verses several important truths about the witness of the church during this period of time. First of all, we learn that the witness of the church is reliable. Now that's communicated by the fact that there are not one, but rather two witnesses. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, we read that it is by the testimony of at least two witnesses that the truth is to be established. This is why God sometimes sent two angels to announce judgment or to validate truth. For example, the two angels who announced the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the two angels who announced the resurrection of Jesus Christ and who informed the disciples that Christ had ascended into heaven and that he would come again as he ascended. What is more, Jesus sent out evangelists two by two, as we read in Luke 10, verse 1. Well, we see, we see the same thing here. The church here is represented by two witnesses. The idea is that what the church through its faithful ministers and missionaries proclaims is absolutely true. It can be relied on, and therefore it must be believed. Secondly, we learn here that the witness of the church is limited. Verse 3 says that the two witnesses representing the church will prophesy 1,260 days. Now, in this context, to prophesy means simply to declare God's word, or we would say to preach. So they will preach for this period of time. 1,260 days. Now you notice that in verse 2 of our text chapter, the period of time is expressed in months, 42 months, it says. But here in this verse, it is expressed in days, 1,260 days. Now why the change? It's the same period of time. But in verse 2, it's, it's divided up into months, whereas here it's, it's in days. Now, one possible answer to this is that in verse 2, we have the picture of a city that is being besieged and finally taken and trampled upon. Now, in ancient times, including in the Old Testament, the duration of a siege of a city was very often expressed in terms of months. In verse 3, however, the two witnesses are described as prophesying or witnessing, which is a day-by-day activity. The point seems to be that every day that we are in this world, we are to testify about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, the point is the church will witness for a definite and limited period of time. And that means that her witness will not be extinguished. No matter how severe the persecution may be, no matter how strong the forces of opposition may be, the church will not be silenced. She will continue to proclaim the word of God during this limited period of time. Thirdly, we learn here that the witness of the church is serious. We read in verse 3 that the two witnesses were clothed in sackcloth. Now, sackcloth is a rough cloth made from animal hair, usually that of a goat or a camel. And it's called sackcloth because it was normally used in making sacks. In Bible times, it was worn to symbolize mourning or contrition. And the fact that these two witnesses wore sackcloth implies that they were very serious. They were on a serious mission, and they had a very serious message to proclaim. They were not like so many preachers today who who feel that they have to crack lots of jokes, especially at the beginning of their sermon, in order to warm people up to the message that they're going to preach. No, they were serious. And they were serious because they preached a serious message. They didn't preach God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They didn't preach how you can have your best life now. They preached about sin and the need for repentance. And they preached about the coming judgment. And they understood that if men do not repent, they will perish. And so they preached seriously and soberly as dying men to dying men. Fourthly, we learn here something of the means of the church's witness. In verse 4, we read that the two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. Now the reference here is to Zechariah chapter 4, the verses 1 to 14. There in that chapter, Zechariah sees a vision of a golden lampstand. Now the lampstand presented, represented the nation of Israel, just as it represents the church in John's time and still today as we read back in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation. Besides this, the lampstand on either side were two olive trees, and each tree had a pipe that fed oil to the lampstand to keep its light burning. Now, one of the olive trees represented Zerubbabel, the governor of the people of Judah during the time of Zechariah. The other tree represented Joshua, the high priest, who was the high priest during the time of Zechariah. Ultimately, however, these two olive trees represent the Lord Jesus Christ, who is both a king and a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The oil flowing from the trees represents the Holy Spirit. Now, the point of the vision is to teach Zechariah and the people of Judah as a whole that the temple which was destroyed by the Babylonians would be rebuilt And it would be rebuilt, as Zechariah says, not by might nor by power, but by God's Spirit. Now, by employing the vision of the two olive trees, John in Revelation depicts the means of the church's witness. 
Believers who are united to Christ and thus partake of his priestly and kingly offices and who by faith in him receive a constant supply of the oil of the Holy Spirit. That's the means of the church's proclamation. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Fifthly, we learn here something of the purpose of the church's witness. The purpose of a lampstand is to shine light. And that's the task of the church. And it's the task of every individual believer. It's to shine the light of the gospel on this darkened world. In fact, back in Revelation 1, we learned that the seven lampstands that John saw in his vision are the seven churches of Asia Minor, representing the church of all ages and places. So just as a lampstand gives light in a dark room, so the church shines the light of the gospel in a sin-darkened world. Sixthly, and this is the main point, we learn here something of the power of the church's witness. Verse 3, God says, I will give power to my two witnesses. Now we see evidence of that power in verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, it says, And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that believers will become flamethrowers. What we have here is an allusion to the time when Elijah called down fire from heaven to consume the soldiers who were sent to arrest him. The point is that when the church witnesses boldly and faithfully, God will enable them to defend themselves against their enemies and even call down God's judgment on them by the power of the word of God. One commentator writes this, he says, Some Christians are tempted to shrink back from boldly declaring God's word as it comes into conflict with worldly values and practices. But We are reminded that we should not fear to declare God's word faithfully since God protects those who valiantly stand for his truth. Now a similar thought is expressed in verse 6. And there we read that the two witnesses will have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now this too is an allusion to Elijah and Moses. Elijah prayed in the idolatrous days of King Ahab and the skies did not produce rain for three and a half years. Moses turned the waters of the Nile into blood and performed many other devastating miracles. The point is, just as Elijah received power to shut the heavens so that it did not rain, And just as Moses received authority to turn waters into blood, even so the mighty missionary church of this present gospel age, if its message is rejected, has authority to judge and condemn the world. So taken as a whole, John's vision in Revelation 11 shows the power of the witnessing church. Now admittedly, we don't see a lot of that power today. Church today has been shoved to the periphery of society. It no longer enjoys the status and the influence that it once did, sadly. But these verses assure us that the church still has great power. And that power resides not in the church, not in her offices, but rather in the word of God. One commentator writes this, By these ordinary means of grace, the church is enabled to declare the truth of God's word, prevail over evil, and deliver sinners from judgment. Now that's what makes the church potent. It's not money, it's not political influence, it's not marketing gimmicks, not anything that involves worldly strategy. The church's power is in spirit-empowered, father-protected proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so let's not give in or give up, beloved. We're not fighting a losing battle, for the battle has already been won. It was won by Christ when he died and rose again. 
from the dead. And our calling is simply to keep on doing what the church has always been doing for 2,000 years. Keep on preaching. Keep on teaching. Keep on witnessing. It won't be easy. The opposition is great and we'll have to suffer as we'll see next week. In fact, there are signs of that happening already now. But in the end, we shall overcome. And one day, when the trumpet will sound and Christ shall come again, then every knee will bow down to him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Dear friends, we thank you for listening to this radio broadcast and we hope to see you again next week, the Lord willing, at the same time and on this station. May the Lord be with you all.